I'm so glad to be part of this group because women are just more democratic. When even when they lead, they listen. I silenced myself. What are you saying about me? If I'm not honest and good to myself, I will speak because that is the only way. Is enough? Is enough? This is women emerging. Welcome, welcome, welcome. On Saturday, we met as a group. The 24 women on the expedition met as a group for a number of hours on Saturday. It was our first meeting. All 24 women committed to finding an approach to leadership that resonates for women so that more women say, if that's leadership, I'm in. The first meeting was glorious. That's all I'm saying. It was glorious. Let me process it and then I'll tell you more. But certainly I promised you at the beginning of this that through these podcasts you would meet all 24 women and I am delivering on that promise today by interviewing the last three members that you haven't heard from so far, Laura, Katrina and Aparna. But I thought that the really interesting thing would be to talk to them about what, as they start on the expedition, what are the hurdles that they anticipate and that we must overcome? The first woman is Laura, who's an engineer, a serious heavyweight engineer in the energy business. And we almost missed out on Laura for the expedition because what she now sees as a hurdle, at one stage she saw as a real serious obstacle to her even becoming part of it. So Laura, we're almost off on the expedition. It started, right? And if the truth be told, we almost lost you to the expedition, didn't we? You almost didn't join. And it's because you were you were worried that we were going to fall into a trap. And I feel that the great thing about having you on the expedition is that you're going to make sure we're not going to fall into this trap. Is that fair? That's absolutely right. Spot on. Yes. I. Um, the reason why I almost didn't join the expedition is that actually what scared me and maybe concerned me is that it's a women-only um, expedition. And, um, and I don't like exclusive clubs. And I really... Um, petrified of um, of actually women only groups as I am petrified of men only groups and um, it was one of the things that that really scared me about the expedition however no hang um, on first why petrified petrified because I really thrive um, in in a group that is diverse and where I can see and hear um, different um, points of view and different angles coming. And I always struggle to, to see that um, in, in a less diverse group. And also women-only groups kind of remind me from, from school days and maybe, you know, elements of, um, of, of, of girl-only groups that um, I, I really, really didn't enjoy. And as a result of that, I've always veered towards either diverse groups or maybe even, you know, more, more male groups. So why have you joined the expedition then after all? So after all that, 
I've joined the expedition because actually I've realized um, through through my work and, and through the things that I'm doing outside work, actually that the views of women are very poorly represented. But not only that, in terms of the views, um, it's actually there are um, qualities within women and that women bring into the leadership debate, if you like. Um, that actually really, really benefit organisations and companies. And actually crucial if we look at how society is changing, that these are incorporated for, you know, for the greater good and making the world a better place. We need to actually really bring out the female and feminine um, traits into leadership generally. And actually, that doesn't really matter whether it's feminine or masculine. I also see it as a responsibility. Um, for myself to, um, you know, bring these pieces to um, to the leadership um, debate and actually have this now integrated. And at the same time, I believe that bringing out the feminine traits into leadership will then at the same time also um, encourage other women to, to join leadership and actually also step up into leadership roles. So it's a, it's a two-pronged approach and therefore totally not exclusive. And I would think that you're going to be on the lookout over the next few months. Now, what are you going to be on the lookout for? You're going to be looking out for how do we bring femininity into leadership without making leadership feminine? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if we look at, for example, if I can name a particular trait that is sits on the feminine side, which is, you know, collaboration. In the world that we're moving into, and actually we already live in, um, collaboration is key across absolutely everything that we do. And actually women have a huge amount there um, to offer where, I dare say, you know, men can learn. Um, but we need to also not have that exclusive to women. So um, it needs to be brought together together with the men. And then what I will be looking out for um, during the expedition is that, you know, the, the type of um, leadership, I suppose, that we, we start to develop that resonates with women is not going to be exclusive for women, but will be fully resonating, not just with women, but also with men. And you've spent your life in the energy world. Yes, I have. A very male-dominated energy world with um, still lots and lots of issues around diversity and, uh, and inclusivity. And does that mean you've become increasingly radical? I think actually maybe in the last um, in the last couple of years I have and actually I can explain why only I say only in the last couple of years. I think what we're very good at as women maybe as a species as well as assimilating so we kind of adapt to our surroundings and you know, maybe even as women start behaving a bit like men and start taking over those traits. But actually what I've come to realise over the last couple of years is that it's only going to get me so far and and actually need to show up as to who I am and what I bring um, in in order to really come to my full potential. And not just for my benefit, but to the benefit of, of the company that I work for and the people I work with um, and for what is my you know long-term vision and my long-term goal. The Laura the Radical. A radical. Who would have thought that, eh? <laughs> Has this changed how you lead, Laura? 
This last week has been so interesting because I've actually seen the effect of using my voice and actually doing that, what I just said, you know, showing up as myself. And um, it's been been amazing. Um, And just to give you an example, um, particularly is sketching, uh, sketching basically what it is that we're trying to do, you know, particularly in this hydrogen business, how it gets us to work to work towards the future and rather than focusing on the here and now in a particular project um, and it seemed like no one had really thought about that and not just keeping it in my head but actually sharing that um, with the rest of the team it's kind of galvanized the whole team together and this happened in a matter of an afternoon I was absolutely astonished um, how quickly this this happened right and also kind of showing the vulnerability and saying well I don't know and I don't have all the answers but I'm asking you to help and share your ideas and let's put it together and see where we go and just not the fear of speaking up and sharing and not thinking that you need to have all the answers before you can speak up it's 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 just been incredible really there are many women who avoid women-only groups and the expedition has to appeal to them as well so it is absolutely crucial as you can see that laura is one of our members the next person is katrina she also almost missed out on the expedition but for very different reasons she was ill and has been ill for some time uh, she's a paralympian who as she'll explain to you largely ran herself into the ground But let's start by unpicking this superwoman outfit she once wore. Katrina, there's a real danger that the expedition becomes a sort of intellectual pursuit and it forgets that we are all physical human beings. You told me once that you you once wore, this is years ago, I think, wore a superwoman suit. How did someone con you into doing that? (laughs) I did actually, Julia. A friend of mine um, who's a photographer was putting together a a series around actually gender issues and she asked if I could be, you know, her her subject. And uh, I did. I wore a Wonder Woman outfit. We took photos in the supermarket of me doing the shopping. We took photos of me at work. We took photos of me holding the baby, hanging in the washing out, flying around the city, um, and then, you know, coming home and being that sexual goddess to my husband and, you know, (laughs) talking about women trying to do everything and be everything with a beautiful smile on my face. Um, and everything was happy and there was no problems at all. So isn't that interesting? Some 20 years ago I did that. And uh, have things changed? Um, not really too sure. Not really too sure. I think the, the the thing that's so interesting is that you sort of, with all the talk about well-being and it's so strong, what about the sense of, you know, pile it on, I can take it all. Well-being, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's what we all do. Yeah, 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 yeah. But pile it on and and almost I'll deal with the physical. D- does any of that resonate? Yeah, look, you know, I mean, it's a challenge for all of us and particularly over my career coming from high-level sport, I certainly realised coming from sport that you couldn't pile everything on because your product was your physical. And so that was um, a wonderful background to have to know if I keep piling stuff on as an athlete, when I get out there on the track and try and run 400 metres and run a personal best 
at a games in front of the world, um, I'm not going to actually achieve that. And you know what? I, I didn't in Sydney, Julia. I actually lost, um, I didn't lose gold because I never had it, but I won silver and won a bronze in Sydney. And the major thing after coming back from those games is I was really disappointed because I actually didn't even run a personal best. So after those games, I actually sat down with my psychologist because I felt like I'd failed in some way because I didn't run a personal best. And we unpacked, you know, how my life was then. And this is without kids. This is Um, I was married but without kids and I had said yes to every opportunity that had come my way and you know I was younger then I was 23 at this point in time and I really did ignore my physical I was getting to training I was getting to work I was studying and when my psychologist sat down with me and we looked at everything that I was doing everything that I had on my plate leading into the Sydney Paralympic Games she said to me Katrina there is no way you could win gold medal. There is no way you could personal best because you're performing, you know, at a silver level or, you know, worse level in every aspect of your your life. Look what you've taken on. And I looked at it and I went, wow, like it was such an incredible learning. Um, And from that time, she said, if you want to be known as being a silver medalist or, you know, a bronze medalist, not even a medalist, if you want to be okay at things, then just keep keep things as they are. But I know deep down that you would love to get back to that gold medal level. So you need to make some significant changes. So I did and uh, put a lot of boundaries in place um, and got back to the 2004 Athens Paralympic Games and did get to a personal best level with a gold medal. Uh, which was extraordinary. And I did learn a lot of things throughout that process as an athlete to really make sure I took care of my physical. I've taken them through now to my life now without being an athlete. Um, however, if I don't have those checks and balances in place, I can re- you know, easily go back to that default of having too much on my plate and ignoring um, you know, that physical and thinking I can do everything and be that superwoman. And I just can't. And there's a danger that if we produce an approach to leadership that resonates with women, it's sort of women who are superhuman and women who 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 ignore the physical and and perversely earlier this year there was a real chance you couldn't come on the expedition with us. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Look, I was, um, you know, I have some great tools, you know, and excellent tools. As I said, as a as someone that has won gold on numerous occasions, I have a pretty good resource kit. And uh, up until the start of this year, my resources really helped me. You know, I've had storms in my life and um, my resources that I had were able to get through those storms. But the start of this year, I had five storms that really just bowled me over um, and it was really difficult. There was moments where um, I I couldn't even get off the couch. I was so fatigued and exhausted that, um, you know, even just surviving was was what I had to do each day. And it was difficult. And I know, Julia, you were sending me messages <laughs> to tell me about this wonderful expedition. I could hardly respond to those messages. It was a really, really scary situation because I didn't know, I didn't know how long I was going to be there for and um, how I was going to get out of it. And I did. Um, but I've, I've, I've definitely learned even from that situation um, that I've got to put more things in place. And someone like me who has been, a, you know, very successful at it, um, now I've got three kids and I do run my own business and life is, you know, is extremely um, busy, but there's more things that I need to put in place to really take care of that physical. I think that's, that's, and just going back, it was, of course, in a funny way, if I'm right, and if I'm not interfering too much and asking too much personal questions, it was, it was, it was sort of multiple storms that all sort of came into a perfect storm, wasn't it? It's it's funny. It's it's the sort of boiling frog thing, isn't it? You just become 
and you don't notice that there's too many coming. Uh, yes. And Julia, now I've had some time to, you know, to get through it and my health has come back. I've really reflected on the last two years and the last two years has been, you know, extremely difficult. There's been so much uncertainty. Um, I worked incredibly hard, uh, you know, for someone that works in an industry that brings people together and to have to, you know, really use that word pivot to change. Um, uh, even when I put things on, they'd get cancelled. And then, you know, just the, the amount of uncertainty. I flew to Tokyo to work uh, with Channel 7 with a, at the Paralympic Games, which is amazing. Then I came home to do 29 days of quarantine. <laughs> so it was like everything I did in the last two years, um, I did well, but I came home and my energy was being de depleted more and more. And by the time I got to December last year, I was pretty tired. I was hoping to have really good time, uh, rest over the, the Christmas break, then had a musculoskeletal injury, which did come about from me doing a lot of computer work and even being a physio, I should have watched out for that, that caused my sleep to be disturbed. I then got coronavirus on top of that. Um, and one of the most difficult things was getting a diagnosis, um, a, a difficult diagnosis of my dear mother and having to, you know, to look at all of that. So it wasn't, it wasn't only the physical, it was emotional and mental that really you know took things took a toll and I really struggled with that I, I really struggled with um, having to surrender I'm someone that um, for my life to date has been able to do um, do incredible things I have an amazing amount of energy and I've got wonderful things in place that probably what I realized were maintaining my level of energy and when this perfect storm hit me yeah there wasn't anything else I could do in fact it was probably the universe saying have a rest have some time to you know to rest and recover and and come out of this in a different way I actually used it as a reset and I'm still in that now and I'm asking myself you know a lot of a lot of really good questions around well, what does, um, you know, for me who's someone that spends a lot of time speaking and consulting in my own business I, you know, I've never asked myself this question is, is what is booked out? You know, if I got a certain amount of um, bookings in a month, I would take them if I could physically get to them. You know, if I could physically, you know, do one after the other, other I would take them. And now I'm really asking questions around, well, what is booked out? Like I've never put boundaries in place like this before. And I know if I don't and I can continue on working in that way, I, you know, having that that crisis at the start of the year, that time to actually, you know, surrender, I know that that could happen. And it was a really good wake-up call to say, well, what are what are those new boundaries? What would I like to do? What, what is soul food for me that when I take the time to do those things in a week, that could really keep me going at a deeper level instead of just having those maintenance things like, yeah, doing a walk every day or doing some yoga. It's actually really taking the time to to go another level of another layer, which I think is incredibly important for women, is um, nurturing our own souls and maybe mothering ourselves. Mothering ourselves, it's a good and useful expression. Without doubt, the expedition must avoid this hurdle of the, um, the super, the superwoman. None of us want to be anything to do with it. Now I think sit back and um, listen to Aparna. Aparna. Aparna's hurdle is that she's, she's demanding that the expedition does not just focus on 
external issues of leadership, but that it looks hard for the tools of leadership that women have within themselves. She explains this much better than I do. But I started by reminding her of, a, of, a, of an expression, of something that she said to me when we first met and, um, and, and asked her to explain it. She said, we have to avoid the monolithic definitions of what it is to be a woman. I'll say that again. We have to avoid the monolithic definitions of what it is to be a woman. What did she mean? When we hear the phrase women's leadership, the focus ends up on leadership rather than women half the time, right? We, we've, um, we see that all the time, right? The, the focus is on what it is that she's going to do, but they forget who the she is. And I, and I, think, I think this is a universal experience because leadership is such a coveted quality. It is such a, it's, it's a quality that is put on a pedestal, but we don't actually really know what it is. And then everybody is enamored by that quality. Everyone aspires to have that quality. And then women and women's leadership, it just becomes, you know, this little suffix. Um, there is an assumption that there is a universal idea of leadership and there is women's leadership is a subset of that universal idea. And what I would really like for us to challenge is can we put the woman first in leadership and, and recognize that when a woman leads, she, le she can lead very differently than what the world has assumed um, leadership ought to be. Because there are tropes. I mean, between management schools and management education and political leadership and the forms of muscular, masculine ideas of success that have overcome this world and have led it to the place where we find ourselves, you know, falling between cracks and caught in fractures and in, you know, in our own fragmented selves. Um, the idea of who a woman is just gets so flattened out. And, and a woman is not a monolith. I mean, this is not to say that men are monoliths. They're, they're not either. But given the, the structure of power relations between the genders and in, in societies across the world, I think it is worth wedging open and really taking apart this idea of what it means to be a woman, to find the source of power inside it and let leadership emerge from that rather than let women be a subset of this great universal idea of leadership. And, and with that, I, I want to sort of place before you, you know, something that we often do when we talk about, when we say something like, you know, women are not monoliths, you know, a woman, the idea of a woman is not a monolith. Um, what we hear now in, in, in popular discourse is the idea of intersectionality, right? That our experience based on our identity, our gender, falls at the intersection of multiple identities, multiple forms of marginalization, multiple forms of oppression. And I think it's a very valuable framing, um, a very valuable framing for social justice to help us recognize that at the intersection of multiple forms of marginality and, and, um, and oppression can lie you know, a, a varied set of ways in which women can identify themselves. But I would also, you know, urge us to, you know, to, to flip that around a little bit. Because, you know, do we always have to 
arrive at our power from powerlessness, from marginalization, from oppression? Could we arrive at our power from what we all draw upon, which is what sits inside of us? Right? Most of us become leaders not, not because we draw on what is what we find in the world, but what we dig very deep inside ourselves to find. You know, this, this conversation to me is an invitation for all of us to think about, you know, what would the reverse of intersectionality look like when we, when we think about power? You know, how can we find intersections of power inside ourselves? How is it that when women come together, that coming together and the, um, the sisterhood that it, it generates across cultures, across identities, because we're mothers, because we menstruate every month, because we are tied to cycles of the moon and the earth and the stars in ways and to nature in ways that you can never reject how much we're part of nature because we're women. We, I mean, the, the, the Cartesian mind-body fracture is something that there is an embodied rejection when you're a woman of the mind-body divide, right? There is, you know, and, and I think when we give in to men the idea of leadership as being a universal idea and defi as defined by the male, if we can start with our body and, and the truths that our bodies tell us, I think there is a different source of power that you begin um, to generate. If you, know, if, I, if you know it's a black body, a brown body, I mean, of course, my experience as a brown woman and the experience of my sister as a black woman will be different than your experience as a white woman. But we're all connected to our nature of womanness, of womanliness, in a way that, you know, we, we find limited space for that conversation about how can leadership emerge from that rather than from an idea that leadership is about resting, it's about control, it's about being directive. Apanga, where does faith play into this? Faith? Ah, oh, you're bringing me to, to the most difficult, the most, I think, relevant thing for us to think about. Um, in today's world, when we live, there is a fear that is generated for those of us who consider ourselves to be liberal-minded and progressive and who believe in human rights, that faith is divisive. It leads to fundamentalist thinking. It is regressive. It, because I think at some level, the idea of the secular has been co-opted in ways that has stripped both individual and collective means for us to access our inner power. And, and, you know, faith to me is really a, the mechanism through which we access our um, and not just the label that we give to the religious tradition that one might be born into or that one might choose to, to adapt. Because I think, I think to, to allow the word faith to be co-opted by the idea of um, religion or organized religion has done women a lot of disservice because, you know, we know how deep forms of patriarchy and misogyny have been have have embedded themselves into and generated a lot of power through um, structured forms of religion but women all over the world and through time have been holders 
of the secrets of faith. Um, they've been hunted down and punished for the power that they've been able to generate because of their ability to reach deep down inside and access their inner resources of power. And that to me is faith. And by, by allowing the idea of the religious and the secular to co-opt the power that faith is, that faith offers all of us, men and women, I think we, we also ended up in, in a place where those of us who are parts of, you know, um, deep movement building within the feminist movement, for example, or other forms of movements, have also, you know, um, lost the connection um, with, with um, so many people for whom faith is their central source of power. Absolutely. Um, and, 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 and to tell someone that your faith, you know, um, is something that makes you um, regressive and um, it, shuts, it shuts you out from the idea of uh, a modern idea of individualism and individuality, which is where you must experience power. Defining for them where they must experience power, I think, has 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 led us to a place where those fractures have now become toeholds for uh, majoritarian populist forms of uh, a, a toxic and muscular masculinity to grow. Which you know, how do we resist that with faith? You know, I I, I do identify myself as a progressive liberal modern woman. But at the same time, I also want to be able to identify myself as a woman with deep indigenous roots in my culture that I draw on not just to um, draw, not just for my identity, but also as a source of my power. And I recognize that, for example, within the social justice world, where um, you know the, the human rights framework is such a fundamental tool on which we build our work. You know the the um, the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights was drafted when when the country that I live in was still a colony, when when most of the countries that most of the world lives in what was you know were still under imperial power, and, and and the voices from from these countries, from these regions, from these cultures did not get to contribute to frame to shape the way in which we think about rights. There are, as we set off in this expedition, huge hurdles, aren't there? There are, there are such huge hurdles. I hope that the, 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 that the fact that the, all the women on the expedition are from all over the world and from very different faiths and backgrounds and beliefs and traditions and professions means that we've got a chance of climbing over those hurdles but there are there are plenty in our way and and the danger is that we slide back endlessly into thinking of the world as it is rather than as it could be but the prize of of overcoming these hurdles is quite considerable isn't it Aparna? I would think so I would think so and I think sometimes I I, I find myself almost sort of skirting the edge of of these hurdles the yeah, sort of, I almost feel like we've fenced ourselves in with hurdles, and 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 every once in a while you get to climb that fence and look at what the world might look. When when we spoke last time, you used the expression "cradle of power" a lot. Why why do you use that expression so much? Well, because you know, to me, the cradle has been a symbol of 
you know, there's this, um, a cradle is to me like a womb that we carry inside ourselves. And the cradle of power for me, it, it doesn't have, to, it, it, it's not a symbol of motherhood, so much the, the symbol of my feminine power. And, and faith to me is the access to that feminine power, which doesn't have anything to do with the outer world. It has to do with me and what I carry inside of me, just because I exist. Yes, as you say this, you are serenaded by the birds that are around you that I can hear. Yes, I, I, I'm very fortunate to be in this beautiful garden, the, the Lodi Garden in New Delhi. And we have thousands of trees and hundreds of birds. And, and, and to me, just, you know, that cradle is also my, my place where I reconcile the outer world with my inner power. It's also um, a space where I prepare myself to, um, to claim my rights as a woman in the public sphere which is where power plays out in the world. But, that, but I, I, I really believe that that playing out of that power is something that needs, that we need to find ways, mechanisms, tactics, structures, resources, forms of resilience that, that really recognize that women's power comes from, from inside of them. And it's the oppression that sits on the outside. That when we push against those structures of power, we're pushing from some, from, a deep wellspring of power that sits inside of us. This is not to minimize in any way the horrendous forms of oppression that, that, that history and culture and civilization have imposed on us women, but to think that the tools are, are also only to be found in the external world. I think we're doing ourselves a disservice. We end this podcast with uh, the birds in my garden, thousands of miles away from those that a parana can hear in Delhi. They are beautiful sounds, but um, certainly in my case, the wind is blowing in the background. And it seems fit because as we start this expedition, the world is a pretty frightening place. And I certainly feel the fear. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We would love you to follow the expedition and provide your own stories and perspectives. You can do this by subscribing to this podcast and joining the Women Emerging Group on LinkedIn, where you can have your say.